Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you have been listening for a while, welcome back. And if you are listening for the very first time, we're so glad you found us. This is a place where real women share real stories of real hope. And the stories vary. And we've had guests ranging from their early 20s to almost 100 years old and stories that are lighthearted, stories that are incredibly heavy and everything in the middle. Tonight, my guest is Barbara, and she's going to be telling us her story. But before she starts, I wanted to let her introduce herself to all of you. Thank you. Uh, My name is Barbara Curtis, and currently I am the program supervisor for a movement here in the Northwest, actually it's nationwide, called Safe Families for Children, and it's an alternative to foster care. I have a background in ministry and kids and bookstores and all sorts of stuff. But right now it's the it's the calling into keeping those kiddos that are most vulnerable out of foster care, out of the system and in with families that can love and care for them. And we love what you do. And it is so important. And, and listeners, if you have never heard of Safe Families before, hang tight. You're going to get uh, much more information about that towards the end of the episode. We'll let Barbara kind of explain it a little bit more and And maybe even how to get involved, or if you want to just pray for the ministry, you can do that as well. For those of you who have followed this podcast, you might remember that we've mentioned Safe Families a couple of times, and we actually had a a gal share her story that ended up adopting a child through Safe Families that Mm -hmm. she was uh, just caring for in in a Safe Families role. And that's a a really sweet story. So I'll have to find that story. I know. I'll have to send that episode back to you. That was Alicia. Well, we're going to start with your story. We're going to go kind of back to the beginning like we we do and we dive in and I'm going to hand it over to you to share your autobiography with us. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I hope we're ready to go way back. Because <laughs> we're going way back. I'm almost 62, so we're going way back. Um, <laughs> it was weird to turn 60. Yeah. That was the trying to get that first syllable of six out was, <laughs> was strange. I was born into an Air Force family. In the early 60s, I was a later in life baby for my parents and my siblings. They are quite a bit older than I am in the love that I just shared that. (laughs) (laughs) But my mom went to church all the time. I grew up going to church. My father did not go to church. And it took me into my teenage and adult years to kind of piece together why that was. Mm -hmm. But in the Air Force, you go to chapel. You know, you're on a military base and everything you need is on the military base. And we would have chaplains that were Presbyterian. We'd have chaplains that were Methodist, that were Lutheran, that um, there was always a Catholic priest as a chaplain, always a Seventh-day Adventist for those folks. But within the Protestant strain of faith, there was it was just always a bunch of different people. And, and it caused those spiritual leaders, as well as those of us in the flock, to not major on the minors. So mm. there are differences in theologies. There are differences in different strains and denominations. And being in this very ecumenical group, it was really just the love of God, just the love of Jesus. I love that phrase, don't major in the minors. Yeah. 
Ooh, well, <laughs> write that one down, ladies. <laughs> and for some people, my major might be your minor. Your That's minor might be my major. So it was mm-hmm. really this. You just got down to the to the very basics of loving God right. and following Jesus. Mm-hmm. My mom taught me from an early age that she was always involved with children. And I just feel like the two most important things she ever taught me were to love Jesus and to love kids. Yeah. And that has served me well my entire life mm-hmm. to do that. My careers, my job, my family, it's always centered around children and I was taught very young to love Jesus and that's never proven to be a bad thing. So it has served me well. Somewhere in the elementary years, I wanted to get baptized. There was a a Methodist chaplain, Lynn Kelly, Chaplain Lynn Mm -hmm. Kelly. And I answered that altar call. I wanted to be baptized. And he came over and talked to my parents about it. And my dad said, no, Mm -hmm. I was maybe eight or nine. And my dad said no. And I just, I thought that was so strange for the man that didn't go to church to have this opinion about that. But Chaplain Kelly said, you know, the the first commandment with the promise is honoring your father and your mother. And we're going to, we're going to honor that. And it doesn't mean that you can't make that commitment to Jesus. It doesn't mean anything. It just means we're not going to dip you in the water. That's, That's all it means. And it was later in my adolescence and my young adulthood that I was able to kind of unpack some of that with my dad, who was who very much believed in God, had grown up in the church, but had grown up in a very rigid home and a very not warm and fuzzy parents at all. Mm -hmm. And and church was just that thing that he was kind of drugged to every weekend by the, you know, by his hair, by his ears. And and it didn't jive for him. That God, once he met my mom, that, <laughs> that God that she had grown up with didn't really jive with that God that he had grown up with. He really struggled with that. So and we ended up being very close. He retired when I was 10, retired to retire and was home for six months. And my mom got a job because he was driving her crazy. <laughs> but I had a stay-at-home dad. From 1971 until I left home. And nobody had a stay-at-home dad in the 70s. Nobody. People rarely have stay-at-home dads now. So it was really unique. And he and I are very close. He passed away in the fall of uh, 2021. But but we mended that. It wasn't even anything that needed to be mended. I just needed to understand where that was coming from in him. And that was a protection for him. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, I don't want the church to hurt my little girl like it had mm-hmm. hurt me when I was younger. So that was the early experiences in the faith. When I when we retired and got to Oregon, we got involved in the American Baptist Church in Southern Oregon. And I got really involved in the camping program there, working at the camps. It's up by Mount Hood, working at the camps in the summer and attending the things during the year there. And that's where I met the two key mentors in my youth, John and Terry Sue Fisher. John has since passed away. Terry Sue and I are still in touch. It was John that said to me, you know, you're really good with kids. And if you leave yourself open to it, God will really do something with that. And I just thought I liked little kids. <laughs> you know, I just thought I babysat all the time. I, I just thought I liked little kids. I didn't realize it was something God could use. And man, those words, just that little sentence shifted my trajectory, you know, and it just became, you know, my mom taught me to love Jesus and love children. And it was just like, okay, yes. this is the path I'm going on. There it is. So that those were the real formative years of my faith. And I was lucky enough to land in a denomination 
we're the local church is autonomous. So the whole denomination in theory doesn't major on the minors. And we find ways to work together. A very liberal church can work with a very conservative church. It just, it just is all around. We can work together on that. So that has served me well in all of my work with children because they all come from different places and different families. Right. And I had in formative years, I had, you know, spiritual leaders and pastors and Sunday school teachers that just reinforced God is love. God is love. God is love. And if you're operating from love, if you're following the example of Jesus and you're operating from love, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And you're going to be fitting in within God's plans. And his plans for you were very uh, kid-centric. Very kid-centric. <laughs> Even the few years that I wasn't working directly with children. Mm -hmm. And I always seemed to find my way back. <laughs> I would get into a position leading children and then get a little further removed from the kids as volunteers came on board. And I'd find myself back in a classroom or back in the kids section of the bookstore. <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> any of those things. The path always came back to kids. Um, as a young adult in my in my 20s, I went through a divorce. Three little kids went through a divorce, and I stopped going to church. I remembered my mom sitting in church, just me and her, because my siblings were grown and gone by the time I can remember really them being around. And I didn't want that. I so did not want to sit in church, me and my kids, without my partner. And he had gone to, to church with us. There were a lot of other issues in that relationship, but that wasn't one of them. He had gone with us. And it was really hard for me. And it was the church I had grown up in, the church that I had really gotten, you know, grounded my spiritual development and my spiritual foundation is. And I stopped going. My family was still going. My youngest at the time, I had three little ones. And my youngest went every Sunday with my mom. Nobody reached out. Nobody called. Nobody said, where have you been? Nobody said anything. Maybe two years into my absence, I got a card from a woman, Laura Lee Ware, and she said, you know, talk to your mom a little bit on Sunday here. You're doing well. We missed your face. That was all she said, but it was the only one. And that was so, I don't even know if it was painful. It was just so odd. And as an adult now, and, you know, having moved around a bit and been in different churches, it's like, I can't imagine somebody just. Leaving the fold and disappearing and nobody, nobody knows. saying anything. Right. Especially when, you know, this, the story of Jesus leaving 99 sheep to go find the one that wandered yeah. off. Yeah. So hopefully, listeners, you can take note of that, that if if you notice somebody has been you know, missing for a little while, you haven't seen them in a little while reaching out shoot them a text yeah <laughs> any anything to make somebody feel like they're seen and well they're and noticed for, and for laura lee she didn't say come back she didn't say right. why have you left or right it know, wasn't an interrogation, interrogation or, or a shaming way or anything no. it was just talk to your mom i hear you're doing well we miss you yeah that was all it was my mom and i were in target one day and we ran into the man that came on as the youth pastor during my absence, my sabbatical from, sabbatical. from, from active church life. <laughs> and my mom introduced me as, you know, this is my youngest daughter. And he said, oh, are, are you visiting from out of town? Because I hadn't been at church. Yeah. He did not know who I was. And my mom said, no, she's backslidden. And 
And I said, Mama, we are Baptists. We don't backslide. <laughs> said we have, you know, that's not even theologically, that's not even where we are as Baptists. And this this youth minister, his name was Stuart, said, doesn't sound like she's backslidden to me. <laughs> and I thought, okay, there. And I did I didn't feel apart from God. I didn't feel separated from God. God has I don't know what I could do to feel separated from God. I just always know God is there. I ended up working. I ended up going back to that church, my childhood church, and ended up working there as the children and youth pastor for several years, and then moved up to Mount Hood to run our American Baptist camp that is up in Welch's. If you've ever been to Mount Hood, it's the stoplight (laughs) on the way to government (laughs) camp. (laughs) There's one stoplight between Sandy and government camp, and that, my friend, is Welch's, and that is where our camp is. That was a really good time. It was a hard time in my life that that, um, precipitated that move. And it was just to this place that was so, again, foundational for me, where John and Terry Sue had had led me and John had planted those words in me. And now at this point, you're still a single mom raising three kids. I'm raising five kids now. Oh, now there's there's five kids. We missed missed that, that second marriage that did not last. And it was like, really, am I doing this again? Is this, you know, what is, what's the deal here? The good news with that is that he and I are great friends. He's family. He's family to my family. He's family to, I'm family to his family, our daughters that we share, the two younger daughters who came along later in life for me, like I did for my parents. So there's some similarities there. So these two little girls and I bopped it up to, up to Mount Hood and it was just such a God thing. It was a really, a really devastating divorce, just in the fact of feeling like a failure, of feeling like, again, you know, the first one, it was like, well, you know, we were really young and there were some addiction issues that he had and there were all these things. And this one was different. It was just, it was, it was painful, but it was the right thing. I mean, it was just that dichotomy of that. We end up at this camp. That is such a place of healing and respite and peace for me. Our daughters had been there before. It was a familiar place to them. And it came with all these built-in teenagers <laughs> because your summer staff at camp is kids and youth, you know, mm-hmm. children and or teenagers and college age kids. And and my girls had come from this house where their siblings had graduated high school by then. They had always been around these teenagers. And so it was just this really it was a no-brainer. And I had prayed for a no-brainer. I was really, you know, again, not doubting God's presence, but, and said to God very clearly, you know, I know at my age and a lifelong person of faith, I am required to do some heavy discerning when things come on. And I know that you expect me to do some discerning. You expect me to use what I have learned about being your child. However, I'm tired (laughs) and I'm heartbroken and I'm sad. And it if there was a no-brainer, if there was a no-brainer to come along, it that would be great. But I'll I'll do the heavy lifting if I need to. It sounds like that could be a book title. However, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next day, the next day, not even 24 hours later, the no-brainer landed in my lap with, "Hey, this person's leaving camp. We're changing the job description. It's not focused on 
maintaining buildings. We've hired a maintenance person. It's really focused on growing the camp and doing administrative stuff and hiring this, but just all these things that I do, just all these things that I do. And it came with a free house. Oh, there and you it go. With, <laughs> it came with a retirement account and it came with wonderful benefits. And it well, was like, okay, well, that's the no-brainer. Thank no-brainer. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was one of those jobs, however, that I, the better I got at it and the longer I was there, the more volunteers had come along and the more removed I was from really day-to-day stuff with, with kiddos, except for my own, right. which is great. So Kent Harrop was the pastor at First Baptist Church here in McMinnville. And he knew that I was, we'd been friends for quite a while. And he knew that I was thinking about making a change. And he called and he asked if I'd be interested in interviewing for the children's ministry position at First Baptist here in town. And I called my mom to tell her about this. And she was in the early stages of dementia. She she knew who all of us were, but but she had a hard time remembering more recent things. She could recite every poem from her childhood. (laughs) She had a she had a hard time remembering more recent activities and places. And she said, Oh my goodness, do you remember when we were in McMinnville for the the American Baptists had what they call an annual gathering. It was just the denominational meeting in the state. And she said, do you remember when we were in McMinnville for the annual gathering? And we were sitting on that little street, Third Street, <laughs> and we were sitting in that restaurant, Hotel Oregon. <laughs> and she said, you looked out the window at the trees and the people, and you said, oh, I could live here. And I said, I do remember that. Yeah. And again, that was just one more time that it was like, you know, God had... God walks with us always. God's always with us. But it was one more time that that little thing was dropped in there. Oh, I could live here. Look at this. I could work downtown and come over here to these little restaurants for lunch <laughs> and, you know, all these things. And seven years later, I was working in this little town and coming to these restaurants for lunch and <laughs> doing all those little things. So that was my last real ministry position. I ended up leaving there after eight years and uh, going back into teaching because I had taught preschool at Christian preschools off and on during my whole yeah. career when you're raising those five kids. And so I went back to teaching for a few years and then the pandemic hit and I got older <laughs> and life takes those twists and turns. Mm-hmm. And coming back from the pandemic, I taught pre-K. And coming back from the pandemic, I just saw these little guys, not only in my class, but just in the school in general, just these little guys that were coming with bigger and bigger and bigger things every year and things that in two and a half hours a day, four days a week, I didn't feel like I was doing, serving them in the best way that I could. And I felt really led back to something. I mean, your ministry is whatever you do, whether you're a public school teacher, an attorney, a pastor, whatever, your ministry can be anything. And I just felt like my ministry, my calling to work with kids needed to transition one more time and be with families and be with families that are experiencing hard times, families that are on the margin, families that are vulnerable, families that are isolated. And a friend of mine had had run the Safe Families program here at in McMinnville before me and she had left and gone on to something else and I had always been really intrigued with that program and so I made some calls had some interviews and and now I'm back working at this wonderful faith-based organization for this wonderful faith-based movement that is helping the kids and the families that are most vulnerable in our society and helping them 
as a statement of our faith, helping them as a statement of of how we want to live, of how we want to serve. Radical hospitality, say families (laughs) calls it radical hospitality. And we, you know, we find people with that sense of radical hospitality that will undergird families that are in crisis and love them because you need to love kids and love Jesus, (laughs) you know. You're serving families that have gone through some significant sufferings. Mm -hmm. Before we kind of dive into a little bit more specific of what Safe Families is and and what it, how, how the ministry functions, Mm -hmm. the ways to be involved, all of that you know, as you kind of shared a little bit of your autobiography before we sat down to record, you are no stranger to some suffering. Nope. If I'm correct, just in recent years, there's been some mm-hmm. some significant chapters in your life. 2012 kind of started these really significant, there are just some kind of pivotal moments. And the summer of 2012, I was walking my dog here in town. Um, we lived not too far from here. <laughs> and I was a runner when I was younger and my older knees don't appreciate running now. So but we walk and we walk and we actually would walk pretty fast. We'd get going pretty fast. One night I'm walking along and I'm turning, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to cross this little street and head down through the greenway and get home. And it was July 14th, 2012. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And I had my, here, this is going to date me. I had my iPod. (laughs) A Taylor Swift song came on. My iPod shuffled around. It was kind of slow paced. And I thought, you know what? This is the last like half mile. I really want something. I want something that's going to keep us both going here at at a good pace. And I took my eyes off of where I was going for a split second. And... The next thing I know, and I don't know how much time had passed, but the next thing I know, I was coming to and peeling my face off the concrete of the sidewalk right there. And my dog <laughs> was just sitting there looking at me, waiting for me, wow. which she's she was a beagle. And they're very nose driven and they really can't be off their leashes because they just run. And yeah. I mean, she was off her leash because... I was unconscious for however amount of time. She didn't run. She just sat there. And, you know, I woke up and there's blood and everything. And so I got that all cleaned up and I thought, well, you know, I bumped my head pretty good. No, it was six months before I was back to work full time. It was a traumatic brain injury and a lot of broken bones and broke all the blood vessels behind an eye, broke my nose, just had a lot of things going on. But the brain injury was the biggie. And there's just, there's been these big things. It was a, it was a decade, the 2012 to 2022 was just a decade of a lot of stuff. My, my children are two boys and three girls and the two boys came first and then my three daughters. So the middle daughter um, moved to New York city uh, at the age of 24. She had come home after graduating college and stayed home for two years and saved some money, moved to New York city. That had always been her dream from the first time she saw a Broadway play. She knew she wanted to live where she could see those all the time. She'd been there three weeks. She got diagnosed with leukemia. Again, God in the midst of everything. She went to the emergency room in the middle of the night because her knee hurt. And she thought, you know, I've been here three weeks. I'm walking up four flights of stairs every day. I'm walking all over New York. I'm pounding the pavement. You know, my knee hurts. No, it was leukemia. It was white blood cells producing so fast in her bone marrow that they were literally trying to stretch out the bone. She she looked online on her phone 
the ER closest to her. She got an Uber, went to this ER. They happened to be associated with NYU Langone Hospital in Manhattan, and she was living in Brooklyn at the time, which is the number two hospital in the country for blood cancer. So, okay, well, yeah. she'd been there three weeks, and yeah, now she's placed her right there. You know, yeah. it's the only place that would have been better is Boston. Boston University has the number one hospital for blood cancer. So, you know, there was there was that. And that was 2019, because just as she was getting to the part where of her post, she had a stem cell transplant, yeah. um, took care of the leukemia, but it wipes out your immune system. Mm -hmm. And you have to start completely over. She had to have all her childhood immunizations again. She got a new DNA, which is fascinating to us. She kept this great sense of humor through the whole thing. When she found out she was getting a new DNA, she was sicker than a dog laying in this bed and she opened one eye and looked at the doctor and said, so what I hear you saying is that if I'm going to commit a major crime, I do it now. <laughs> and he did not miss a beat. He said, yes, but you wear gloves because you keep your fingerprint. <laughs> oh. And it was this, it was a teaching hospital. So it was like an episode of Grey's Anatomy. I, oh, yeah. I mean, it was just people came in in mass and left in mass. And when she made that comment to the doctor, all of these residents and interns were like, oh, oh, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And he just laughed and, right, back. Beat and right back with it. And they're like, we've never heard people talk to the doctors that way. It's so fun. <laughs> but um, right as she was getting some of her freedom back and able to kind of go some places, COVID hit. And New York was apocalyptic. So she came back to Oregon for the summer, went down to Southern Oregon, stayed with my oldest daughter, her sister, yeah. where she could even be outside. She couldn't leave her apartment in yeah, New York. Maybe couldn't she the buzzer broke in the building so she couldn't even like go to the lobby and pick up Grubhub food or anything she was just stuck in her stuck in her room and your mental health starts to take a toll at that point so that that was a biggie I lost someone to a sudden heart attack someone that was very important to me early on in that 10-year frame there was mm -hmm. just a lot going on in that 10-year frame I lost both my parents during that time at 92 and 97 there's nothing you can complain about <laughs> getting to have your parents for that long. But it's weird. I was just saying to my husband last night, it was like, I can't believe I don't have parents. <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing to all of a sudden remember, oh, you know, what? yeah, they're both gone. So, And again, I had them both until I was way older than they were when they lost their parents. But it's still a weird thing. It's still a weird thing. But, you know... That whole 10 years, I can look at these things. It's like, okay, there was this fall. There was this death. There were these things. There was this job change. There was cancer in my poor kid. But God was there. Mm -hmm. it, it's impossible to not see yeah. God when I look back at that. And I think people that I know that really aren't people of faith or aren't people that quite want to dip their toe in Christianity, I think they even see it. You know, it's like, oh, well, but look what happened when the ER was the number two hospital in the country. The, you know, this, it, yeah, it's just impossible to not, to not see God and all of that. And then last year I remarried. Last I was year. just going <laughs> to say, you, you, you mentioned just, just in passing, ago, yep. the husband, I was like, we, we have got another chapter there. We've got another chapter. Longtime friend, 35 years of friendship. He lived down in Southern Oregon. I was 
I was down there for quite a while, but then up here, kept in touch. He's he's very much a 20th century guy. He's not on social media. He has no idea what a podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> so hi, honey. Love you. <laughs> and, you know, just back and forth in touch. He came over when I was down when my dad died and we were having to my dad had built the house that my folks lived in and they had lived there for 40 years. And my folks had been married 75 years when my mom died. And there's just a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in that house. And we were going through, through some things and Dan would come over and, you know, kind of help. And he, he took my dad's old stereo and gave it to somebody. And so that just, you know, our we were in more contact in those months um, when I was going back and forth down there. Then I hit kind of a rough spot in March of last year with, I was still teaching. I was really feeling that wasn't the place for me to be. I was really feeling that pull to, I am not doing all that I am able to do for these little guys in this role. I need to be in a different role. I need, I mean, there was just that pulling, that God poking you, you know. My doctor put me on a, a mental health leave of absence. Just take a couple of weeks sleep in, eat well, (laughs) drink water and see, you know, let's just get some clarity because it was starting to have an effect on my health. I'd gained a little bit of weight. My blood pressure is always ridiculously low and it had gone up a little bit. It wasn't dangerously high, but it was high for me. And Dan was kind of worried about me having this little bit of a crisis and having this downtime um, I had just bought a tiny home with part of my inheritance. I bought a tiny home, which had always been a dream of mine once I had no kids in the house. And But my my dog, the one that was with me when I found my dog, I had to put her down a week before my dad died. So it was boom, boom. And Dan was just worried. He was a little worried about me. And he said he wanted to come up. And I said, sure. And, and he came up and he words it. He said, we, we were friends for 35 years. And then all of a sudden, everything turned wonderful. Oh. <laughs> like, oh. And it really did. It was, you know, there were a couple of times when, you know, he was kind of driving me around places and just kind of, you know, we were, I was showing him up here, this end of the state, which was really good for me at that mm-hmm. time to not be alone, to not just be isolated in my house, mm-hmm. um, looking at pictures of my dog and my dad. There was a couple of times that we either finished each other's sentences or we did something. And I looked at him and I said, my goodness. I said, why didn't we get married 30 years ago and have our own babies? And there were things going on with our kids at that time. We were both talking about it. And he just stopped. And he said, I just don't have an answer for that. (laughs) He said, I I just don't have an answer for that. And that kind of got this conversation going. and, And yeah, he's just, again, impossible not to see. God in the ashes, you know, yeah. of beauty from ashes, beauty from ashes. Absolutely. Beauty from ashes. I'm having a hard time. I'm, you know, this person doesn't want me to be alone through this and wants to come up and pal around and keep an eye on me. And that'll be great. And yeah. Then it turns wonderful. <laughs> then it turns wonderful. So, and so now how long have you been married? It'll be a year in June. Oh, you are still in your newlywed year. year. Yeah, it'll be a year in June. Amazing. People, there's that end of when Harry met Sally. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that movie? Oh yes, so, <laughs> love that movie. It's my all-time favorite movie. The movie by which all other movies are measured for me. But you know, has a little vignettes of the couples, uh-huh. the little couples, and at the end of the movie, it's Harry and Sally sitting there, and and Harry says something. You know, then 
we were friends, then we weren't, and then we fell in love, and now we're married. And Harry says, yeah, it only took uh, six months. And she says, well, 10 years and six months. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of what we go back to. It's like, yeah, no, it didn't take that long. You know, we knew once we knew. Right. We knew. And then, you know, we'll both say, well, it didn't take that long. Well, 35 years. And then. Yeah. And then. And then. That it didn't take that long. Like. <laughs> so. But again, you know, I look back to the very beginning of that friendship and it was just, there's, there's God, there's yeah. God in the details, you know, mm-hmm. God is in the details. People say the devil gets in the details and it's like, you know what, not, he, not, not my details so much. <laughs> God just really gets in those details and moves yeah. those places. And even after I had moved here in 2007, I was still on the staff at the camp that I had run. I was just overseeing our, our program, our mm-hmm. camping program for our denomination. And there was a young woman from one of our American Baptist churches in Salem. She was a high schooler at the time. And she was sharing at campfire during high school camp. She had been adopted from, it was one of the Slavic countries. She was adopted out of there. She'd been in an orphanage. She'd gotten here adopted by this really solid family. She'd been here maybe a couple of years. So she was in early elementary school and their house burned down. And her cat was killed in the fire. And um, they rebuilt the house. They got another cat. That was run over by a car. Oh my gosh. Um, her, her adopted father got very ill and died. There was just all of these things that happened to this poor girl from her. Like coming here is maybe a four or five-year-old to getting up into high school when she was with us at camp. And... And her family has a very strong faith and she was in a really solid church with a really solid youth group. And I know that was a big part of what got her through that. But she was sharing with her grandma one night about just all of these things that were going on. And it's just like, you know, these are so sad and how many more bad things are going to happen? And her grandma said, you know, if you look at the back of a tapestry, it's just got all these threads and all these different colors and you just can't mm. tell anything that's going on there, but you turn it over and here's this beautiful picture. It's beautiful scene, this beautiful blanket that you get to wrap up in. And the grandma was well into her eighties, I think. And she said, that's just what I've learned in my 80 years. It's just that, you know, the flip side and maybe while we're down here, while we're not in heaven, maybe while we're down here, it's all the flip side. It's all the back with the gnarled up thread and some threads are hanging off and they have to be cut and some threads are messy and you just can't imagine what this is going to do. But we're going to get to heaven and God's going to turn that blanket over and we're going to see this beautiful, beautiful picture that's been created out of all those threads of our lives. And I mean, there was not, you could have heard a pin drop in the middle of the forest with this young lady sharing this story. And I've carried that with me. I mean, a little child will leave them. Come on. I've been with kids my whole life and they always, I learn the most from them. And that is, that's just the way, that's just the way it works. So yeah, I can look back at a really hard decade. I can look back at heartbreaking relationships ending and the hand of God is there. The presence of God is there. I wouldn't be sitting here today if not for that, because those would have been things that would have broken me beyond repair if I didn't have my faith. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't foundationally know that, that God is love, 
and God loves me. And now you get to really sort of be the hands and feet of those truths with families in need who probably can only see the backside of their tapestries. Absolutely. And it, and it looks pretty dismal. Mm -hmm. It looks pretty dismal. Look, you know, they're, and not all of them. I mean, some families come to us because they just don't have anybody here. You know, dad's going to have a medical procedure and they don't live by their extended family. They've just moved here. They haven't really met friends. Yeah. Can you help us out? Absolutely. But the majority of our families come to us that are already on the child welfare radar that maybe even have an open case, maybe even are just one or two things away from losing custody of their children. And of course, if kids are in situations that they need to be removed from, uh, when they are in imminent danger, absolutely. Right. You know, thank God for the foster care system. Thank God for people that that work in child welfare and care about these families. But we've all heard the horror stories mm-hmm. of kids that don't really need to be there. You know, yeah. families just needed some undergirding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Safe Families for Children does. When you don't have anybody, I can't imagine picking up the phone and not having anybody to call in a crisis yeah when something was going on be it we hosted a, a little one for a, a parent who had to have some oral surgery and this parent didn't have anybody we had a family come along take care of this little one for a little bit parent had the surgery the little one back up everything's fine but most of our families come to us dealing with some really big stuff houselessness addiction domestic violence substance abuse just scary things. A loss of a job that has then spiraled into, well, I lost my house. Well, I lost this, I lost that. And they don't have anybody around them. And Safe Families for Children works to identify volunteers that will circle around. We call it a circle of support. We circle around these families and we put an extended family-like structure into place folks and our volunteers we find through churches so they're serving out of their desire to have that radical hospitality out of you know their faith is speaking to them and they are serving in this way but it's not to convert families it's not to proselytize it's not to do any of that it's just to get around these families and love them chances are when you love them they're going to see god because god is love it's it's just a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing to watch and people, I mean, it's called Safe Families for Children because the children are the most vulnerable in that situation. We want them to be safe. But the big hard work goes on with the ways that we wrap services around the families, the grownups that are in there. It's not always parents. It's Sometimes it's an aunt or an uncle. Sometimes it's grandma or grandpa. But the way that we can wrap around and, you know, help them with housing or with employment issues or, you know, working out childcare or any of these things. Our host families get to love on the kids and have the kids and play with the kids and the rest of the volunteers in that circle of support really come alongside the grownups and help them get to a place in their life where they can safely have their kids. They won't be in danger of losing them. And families self-refer to us. Child welfare can refer a family to us, but they have to get permission from that family. So it's not coming in and taking kids against anybody's will or better judgment or anything. It's just 
creating a family around people that are socially isolated and in danger of possibly losing their kids. Now you mentioned, and well, listeners, if if this is the first time you've heard of Safe Families and you're uh, trying to picture this circle or want more information, we will have the website link in the episode notes. But um, it just kind of quickly, because I know we could talk about what Safe Families <laughs> is and what Safe Families does for many more hours. Yeah. But I, I do want to kind of just paint the picture of that circle. There are a lot of people who hear about it and they think, wow, that's amazing, but I am not in a position to where I'm just not able to right now have somebody come you know, live with, with me, me for a week or whatever the case may be. I, I've heard this phrase so often, we get kind of mentally trapped with the, well, if I can't do everything, I won't do anything. I won't do anything. Exactly right. And so, um, but yeah, so if you would just take a moment and kind of paint the picture of that circle, the different roles. That, so if that you think of a do. circle, if you just think of that shape and right in the middle of that circle is a family in crisis mm-hmm. and a church right in the middle of that circle. And then surrounding that circle are, we have these titles for the roles, uh, a ministry lead, a family coach, a host family, a family friend, and a resource friend. Mm -hmm. Those are the five people that that make up this circle that have this church and this family in crisis at the center. The ministry lead is a volunteer. All of them are volunteer positions. Ministry lead is a volunteer that helps find people within his or her church that are willing to volunteer with this Safe Families movement in some capacity. So the ministry lead is kind of the person at the church that coordinates how this is all going to happen. And we have our professional staff at Safe Families that we help train and vet and and screen and do all the things with these volunteers. So um, not all families need hosted. Mm-hmm. Not all families, not all families that come to us need overnight hosting for a week or a month or whatever. Um, some of them just need somebody for a few hours every day or once a week so they can get to their their rehab appointment or their AA meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so in that circle, the ministry lead there is on the periphery and that person kind of pulls everybody together and, and organizes it. The family coach comes alongside the, the grownups and really helps them set goals, verbalize goals, and helps to find the services that can help that parent meet those goals. The host family or is the family that takes in the kids either day hosting or overnight hosting um, and just surrounds them, makes them part of their family. Parents can see the kids or not. They don't have to be separated from them. Lots of our families get together and have dinner together, you know, one night a week or a couple nights a week, if that's the thing. So the host family is the one that's, that's in the weeds with the kids. And then the family friend and the resource friend are those folks that say, Hey, great program. I'm 85 and can't have a two-year-old in my house. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They could come over and uh, play with kids some afternoon. They can be a respite for the host family. If the host family has to go out of town for the weekend or whatever, and then maybe the, the family isn't comfortable with their kiddo leaving town. So they can come over and stay with, with those. They can uh, drop off diapers. They can they're just that friend. They're that person that either the host family can call 
or the bio family, the biological family can call and say, hey, we need we need some help. And then the resource friend is the person that often organizes a meal train. If you're going to, a family, a host family is going to be hosting for a length of time, you know, maybe they'll organize one or two meals to be delivered into the home just to kind of help offset the costs of having different, you know, more people in your household. They're the ones that can drop off the diapers. They're the ones that can pick mom up and get her to her appointment. So that there is a level of involvement yeah. from big in you know, opening <laughs> yeah. your home and waltzing strangers right. in to, yeah, I'm at the store, I'll pick up a box of diapers and drop it by. And I'm sure there's a financial need too. I mean, I'm sure if somebody oh, yeah. just said, I, I'm in a position in my life where I really don't have the time, but I might have some financial resources mm-hmm. if they wanted to make a like, donation. I never say no to anybody's <laughs> money. Never, never, <laughs> never. And of course, praying for this ministry mm-hmm. and praying for families. I will never say no to prayers either. Right. I'd be more apt to say no to money than I would to prayers. Yes. Amen. <laughs> so, well, I just want to thank you for opening up, sharing your life story with us, talking about safe families. Uh, for those who are part of our like little immediate Calvary Mac family, you know that we have uh, kind of partnered with safe families. We've, we've had a, a mom or two that we've helped um, over the last year or so, and it's it's pretty special. And so we close every episode with a prayer. As you said, you'd never say no <laughs> to people's <laughs> prayers. <laughs> I'm hoping that that means you'll say yes to praying for our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I would absolutely do that. And thank you. When I first went into professional ministry, the when I filled out the application, the search committee that was bringing me on board had me write my statement of faith. Uh, I'd never written a statement of faith. It was a good exercise. I really enjoyed doing it. It was it was fun to kind of put that together and yeah. look back and look at the backside of the tapestry when I, <laughs> when I'd already peeked at the other side. Um, and that's what this was like too. Mm-hmm. This was like thinking about that. It was like, yeah, this is something I need to do with some regularity is just check in with my own story and be really cognizant of those places where, Oh, well that was God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, oh yeah. That was God. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a good exercise. All right. We well, can let's pray. pray. God of love and grace, we are so grateful to you for just the gift of being able to share, the gift of community, the gift of being alive for yet another day to to go out into the world and to love kids and love people. I would just ask that for the listeners today of this story of my story um, if they see themselves in that if they hear themselves in that if if they can even take one little nugget out of that story i want that to be for your glory and i want folks to know that that's that's because of you that's because you were you have been there and walked along and carried me through all of these years of life I want to pray for the, the children of our listeners, the the families, the, the faith communities, the friends, the circles, all of those extended supports and those extended family members that we have out in the world. And I just want I want the shared story and the shared love to be evident in 
in what folks are hearing today, in what folks are receiving today, and what folks are learning from just this time together. So thank you for that gift of being able to share. Thank you for always walking alongside me, always walking alongside us. And thank you for that grace and that love that is never-ending and life-giving. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again so much, Barbara. And ladies, thank you for tuning in. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by this story and that you come back and join us next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Women.